Good morning, everyone. I will let you start the process of trying to find Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 again. It's funny, I kind of joked about that last week, but there's so much introductory material on our study Bible sometimes that finding the first chapter of Genesis is a lot harder than you think it is. Uh, last week we began a new series of messages, uh, which I just called Foundations, in which we are going way back to the beginning of the Bible and way back to the beginning of human history, basically, and, and what we're doing is we're, we're making an effort to try to shore up our faith, to make sure that we have a good understanding of some of the very basic truths that are, are taught to us in Scripture, but that are being increasingly called into question and doubted or even denied outright by the loudest voices in our culture today. And also, not just to shore up our own faith in the face of that, but to make sure that we are able to meaningfully communicate our faith to the next generation, because these, these basics of the faith, these basic truths are very foundational and very critical for life and for faith. And so last week, we opened up the book of Genesis, the first few verses, and we began looking at the process of creation. And we talked a lot last week about the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of God. I made a very big deal with you about how God is without equal, that He is the only God, that He is the only Creator, that He is distinct from His creation and not part of it, but that He stands above it and over it and outside of it. And in fact, God created everything, the entire universe, simply by speaking it into existence. That was last week. And so we saw the uniqueness of our God. This week we are going to see another aspect of God's character, and that is His faithfulness. His faithfulness. Now that may surprise you that we're going to get into something that kind of interpersonal sounding, talking about something like creation. Uh, and it's going to take us a little while to get there, but we will. I'm, I'm, I'm also today going to be um, talking a little bit more with you about background, about the literary and cultural background of the passage that we're reading. Because when you get into these Genesis passages, we have a lot of modern assumptions that we've gleaned over the years because we've grown up in a very scientifically sophisticated culture. We've grown up in the West. Uh, Genesis was written originally to people basically in the East. And so there are all sorts of differences between our scenario and those people that first got the book of Genesis. And so we're going to have to suspend some of our assumptions, maybe take a step back and look at the way that the people who first read the Old Testament would have understood these verses, because that's going to be very important for us. So it's going to get a little bit deep today uh, in places. But before we do that, before we get a little farther into the text and into this idea of God's creative activity, let me first tell you a few things that we are not going to be talking about today. We are not going to be talking about the age of the earth. We're not going to be talking about even the age of the universe. We're not going to be talking about whether the six days of creation are literal 24-hour days or whether they are symbolic of longer periods of time. So we will not be talking about dinosaurs or carbon dating or anything else that tends to become controversial in this way when we talk about creation. And this is not because these topics are uninteresting or unimportant or that no one should talk about them, but because a discussion of these things would distract us from what the Holy Spirit is really trying to say to us in these verses, and we don't want to miss the point, which is very easy to do here. So let's read the first four verses of the Bible again. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, we're going to talk about other verses besides these four, but these will give you the idea of where we're going. And verse 2 is a very interesting verse. Uh, this phrase, formless and void, or without form and void, is sometimes, it's, it's, been, it's been interpreted a lot of different ways, and sometimes it's latched onto by people who are trying to figure out why the earth seems so old. And they latch onto this because what they see in the fossil record is, can be confusing sometimes. And technically, these words, formless and void, can refer to a place where there has been some sort of catastrophe and some sort of devastation, you know, kind of like my office. Or, or, or your kid's dorm room who just moved into college this year. Not yet, because it's only been about a week, but in three weeks, that room will be formless and void. Okay, it'll, it'll be kind of like that. Uh, and, it, and it could be interpreted that way. And, and I mention this because you may have heard that explanation. And what people are saying is they're saying, well, there's, there, there, there must be some sort of big gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, some big period of time, and during that time some horrible, devastating thing happened, and so when God comes to the earth here, he comes to a place that's just been devastated, and so it's like a, 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 you know, the, the, some, something horrible has happened. Uh, that is possible, but I will tell you that it is unlikely to be the meaning here. Regardless of whether it solves any of the issues with science, it doesn't really make a lot of sense from a literary perspective, first of all, because why would not the Bible at least mention that, yeah, a whole lot of time had passed uh, between those two verses? It's very awkward to read it that way. But even more importantly than that, it totally misses the point of the passage. Genesis 1-2, the point of the second verse of the Bible here, is to set us up for the rest of creation, to set us up for the rest of the chapter, and, and to, to build our anticipation for what is coming, and to point out the nature of the problem that God is about to solve. The Hebrew words for formless and void are actually really fun to say. Um, it says there that the earth was tohu vabohu. Isn't that cool? Uh, turn to your neighbor and say tohu vabohu. Go ahead. I never do that, but I thought that would be a fun thing to do. Okay. You just called them formless and void, but that's okay. It's just a neat little phrase. Um, <laughs> but Although these words can be construed to signify maybe catastrophe and devastation, they're, they're usually not. The basic meaning of this is formless and void. The tohu part means formless in the sense of without order, without shape, without any meaningful design or purpose. Okay, then the bohu part, the second part, means basically empty in the sense of unfilled, in the sense of unpopulated. And if you think about it, those are the exact two issues that God is going to deal with through the rest of chapter 1. He's going to be bringing order to chaos by making usable space, and then he's going to be filling the space. He's going to be removing the emptiness and taking care of that problem. So that's what he does for the rest of chapter 1. Now in the rest of verse 2, we see the state of the earth before God begins to work on it. It's been created in verse 1. It exists. It's there. But all we really have at this point is deep water and darkness. Deep water and darkness. Darkness over the face of the deep. And in Old Testament times, deep water and darkness were not thought of as good things. Not at all. In fact, they were fearful and intimidating. People in the ancient Near East did not attach the same kind of, of romantic and exciting ideas to, to darkness that we do today. You know, like the music of the night and all that sort of thing. No, it was nothing like that. Darkness meant nothing but confusion and danger. 
Deep water was the same way. It was not a place that was a, a, a place of thrill and adventure where you go out there on your boat. It was a place of danger and violence and fear of the unknown, and it was a place of death. It was a place that would swallow you up. And so if there's nothing in creation but darkness and deep water, the point here is that you have pretty much the most inhospitable environment possible. But something is about to happen. And we see that because the Spirit of God is brooding over the surface of the waters. And that word brooding carries with it the idea of anticipation. When you read Genesis 1, verse 2, you should hear, and if Scott was up here, I'd make him do it. You should hear a drum roll. You should hear something is about to happen. Something good, something meaningful, something unprecedented is about to happen. Now, many, before we get to the symbol crash in verse 3, let me say this. Many, many of the other nations around Israel at the time Genesis was written, they saw the deep water and the chaos of darkness, and they actually made gods out of these things. And so, in, in some of the creation stories from these other cultures around Israel, in order for creation to happen, there had to be a great war of the gods, there had to be a great conflict of some kind, and the god of chaos or the god of the deep would have to be defeated by the other gods in some big cataclysmic event before anything could happen with creation. In fact, some of them will teach us that creation kind of came out of that conflict. But the biblical account, the real account of creation, is so much different than that. There is no struggle. There is no conflict. There is no hint of opposition to what is happening. God doesn't have to fight any battles. He doesn't have to get all worked up about anything. He just speaks. That's it. And the mighty deep, the chaotic darkness, these fearful elements that are so far beyond our ability to control and comprehend, these things that mankind is so afraid of that we make gods out of them, they don't even try to put up a fight. They hear the Word of God, and they just do His bidding without hesitation. Amen. Did you know, this is kind of, of, of crazy, you might have read this, but according to the statistics, a lot of people today, including a lot of adults, are still afraid of the dark. We are. Some people even admit it. Brothers and sisters, we do not need to be afraid of the dark. We, either in the literal sense, right, or of all the other things that darkness tends to signify to us. We don't need to be paralyzed by the fear of the unknown. We don't need to collapse in fear at the problems in our lives that are so large that we can't even understand them, yet alone try to solve them, because at the voice of God, they have no choice but to obey. God may not choose to remove them right away because He's doing some things in our lives that he, He'd like to do, but He is infinitely above all of these things. He has all authority over them, and nothing can withstand the force of His Word, His simple Word. Amen. Nothing. And the first two and a half days of creation show us the amazing power of God to bring order from chaos. That's what He's doing. I want you to start by picturing this, this formless mass of deep water and darkness. Tohu bohu. And then God is going to begin to work on it. First he creates light. Let there be light. There's light. Then he has to do some separating, some distinguishing, 
So he separates the light from the darkness. Picture God just pulling the light and the darkness apart from one another to untangle them and separate them. And then what he's going to do is he's going to separate the waters below from the waters above. He's going to create some vertical space in creation. Then he's going to separate, the next day he's going to separate the waters from the land and he's going to create some horizontal space. It's like God is making a window in the darkness, a window in the chaos for something that's going to fill it up. We find out how important this is later on. Because God's Word is holding back the darkness. God's Word is holding back the water. And in Genesis chapter 6, God is actually going to let some of this water back in. Almost undoing creation, but not quite. But for now, God immediately, here in Genesis 1, He begins to make use of this space that, that He has cleared out getting rid of the emptiness. By the end of the third day, he's already created many kinds of trees and vegetation on the land. And of course, in the next three days, God continues to fill things. He fills the heavens with stars, and he brings the sun and the moon into focus. He fills the sky with birds. He fills the sea with fish. He fills the land with beasts and livestock and creeping things. And then, of course, he finishes up with a very special creature, human beings. But we are going to be talking a lot in detail about that particular creation over the next few messages. So we won't talk about us a whole lot right now. For now, let me just point out one more phrase that we see over and over again in this passage. It's on multiple occasions. It says this, that God looked at what he had made and he saw that it was good. Okay, good. Now, what does good mean? We have to figure out what this means because good, that's a word that can be interpreted in lots of ways, right? We say, God is good. And then we say, good dog. Right? Those are two different things. We say that ice cream is good. We say that extra point attempt was good. You know, we use good for a lot of stuff. So what is, what is God saying here? Does it look good? Is it morally good as opposed to evil? Is it without, without defect? Is it perfect? What does good mean in this context? In order to answer that, we need to think a little differently because in modern times here in the West, we think about creation we tend to think in terms of bringing matter into existence, bringing things into existence, you know, making stuff, you know, poof, 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 there it is, there it is. We tell our kids about creation, God made that, God made that, God made that. And so we picture bringing things into existence, and, and that's important. Did that happen? Yes. Genesis 1-1 describes it. We talked about it most of last week. That part needs to be explained. How did something come from nothing? Genesis 1-1 tells us God spoke it, He created it, and it was there. But you know, the people of ancient Israel and the people around them that would first encounter these words didn't think that way. When they thought about creation, they didn't think in terms of existence, they thought in terms of function. They didn't think so much about making stuff. For them, it was a matter of getting things going. It was a matter of, of, of starting things off, getting things moving. We play, we'd say today, putting plans into motion. That's how they thought of creation. And there are hints of this in the Genesis story here, too, in the narrative. It's clear that God is starting something. He's setting things in motion. And it's also clear that he has a purpose. He has a functional purpose for everything he's doing. The first hint of of separating that God does is he separates the light from the darkness. And on day one, he calls them day and night. And then he says this, day one. Day one. He starts a clock ticking. What we have here is the beginning of recorded time. And then when God gets around to populating things, we get a huge hint of his purpose in verse 14, which is kind of strange in a way. 
Because in verse 14, seemingly out of nowhere, there's an explanation of how the stars and the other heavenly bodies were put there to make it possible to track the seasons. Now, that explanation would be totally out of place unless God is indeed thinking in terms of function and purpose, not just making stuff. Sure, the stars are very pretty, but as pretty as they are, they're also going to be useful, which begs the question, useful to whom? Right? I mean, who, who needs to use the stars to get some help tracking the seasons? Does God need to use them? No. The animals? They haven't figured that out yet. Somebody else would have to use the stars to keep track of the seasons. I wonder who it is. And I wonder why in verse 12, when it starts talking about trees and things, it only talks about vegetation that produces seeds that are edible and fruit trees. It doesn't talk about all the other millions of kinds of vegetation that God made. Why is that, do you think? Are you starting to get a little bit of a hint of what God's creation is really all about? Let's say you go to visit some friends of yours. You know, you go over for, to visit them for dinner. Maybe it's a young couple with no kids, right? So you're visiting them, and you're having dinner, and then during dinner, uh, you get up to excuse yourself for a moment. Maybe you have to go to the bathroom or something. So you're headed down the hall, and you're not like a creeper who looks in everybody's rooms all the time, but you happen to notice that there's a room open, and that the light has been left on, and you look through the door, and you notice something very strange. You notice that the room is painted light blue. There's a teddy bear border around the top of the walls. Plastic protectors in all the outlets. And there's a bassinet in one corner and a changing table with a diaper genie in the other corner. So, what will you conclude? All right, so the first thing you conclude, and you, you probably skip over this, but the first thing you would conclude is somebody's been doing some work in this room. You know, there is a purpose behind this particular color scheme and this particular arrangement of furniture and all the other items that you see here. There is a design, there is a reason it makes sense. But the second thing, of course, that you would conclude is someone is on the way, right? Not just anyone, but a particular type of someone with very specific needs that this room is especially designed to address. And you can picture this young couple spending hours in this room setting everything up just right so that when this new person arrives on the scene, everything will be just perfect. This is the idea behind the word good in Genesis 1. The picture of God here is not, as much as we like to think this sometimes, it's not the picture of an artist at a canvas painting some of it and then looking back and saying, yeah, I like that, that looks good. Painting some more, oh yeah, I like that, that looks good. No, God is not pictured as an artist here. He is pictured as more of an engineer. And when he looks at the different parts of his creation and he calls them good, what he is saying is, that'll work. Oh yeah, that'll work. Oh, that's going to work perfectly. Oh, that is exactly what they're going to need. Or maybe even, oh yeah, they're going to love that. You see, God, God isn't just creating a planet and filling it with a bunch of random stuff. God is creating an environment. An environment. Now, the word environment has taken on a life of its own these days, right? But I want you to think about what that word means. Webster defines environment as the surroundings or conditions in which a person, animal, or plant lives or operates. So the whole idea of environment is determined by, by what or who the environment is for. An environment without something living in it and operating in it makes no sense. In other words, the environment does not exist for its own sake. It is always tied to that which is living in it. In Genesis chapter 1, maybe a better word to use is that God is creating a habitat. 
and to shamelessly borrow a phrase from my wife's place of work, he is creating a habitat for humanity. It was designed to be our home. It was designed, first to last, to be our home. And I know that might sound sound kind of human-centric, and yes, the Bible is clear that God does care about the rest of his creation. God cares about the plants and the animals. Psalm 145 tells us that he is loving toward all he has made, that he satisfies the desires not just of mankind, but of every living thing. And yet Jesus is very clear in Matthew 5, is he not? When people are worrying about stuff, Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. God cares for them so much. Look how beautifully and how generously he dresses up the flowers of the field. And look how generously he feeds the birds of the air. Does God love those creatures? He absolutely does. But then Jesus says this. He reasons from the lesser to the greater. And he says, how much more is he going to clothe you and feed you? So what's the assumption there? You're special. You really are worth more to God than they are. We'll talk more about human beings in the next few weeks, but for now I want you to notice this. Genesis 2.8, to skip ahead a little bit, you can look there if you want, but it says there that God put the woman and the man into a particular place, the Garden of Eden. He, put, he sets them in their place. God doesn't do that with any of the other elements of his creation. Then later on, an even stronger word is used. In English, it's the same word, put. But in Genesis 2.15, when God puts the man in the garden, that word means to put in a place of rest, a place of protection, a place where he will be cared for. So I want you to think of this young couple that we talked about in the illustration coming home from the hospital and carefully placing that baby in that bassinet in the midst of the room that they have lovingly furnished just for him. And when that baby gets placed in the bassinet, it goes from good to very good. In this whole creation narrative, God is looking forward to placing the man and the woman into this perfect environment. That's what he's doing. We are on his mind from the very beginning and then throughout the process as he fine-tunes everything about his creation to support us. And by the way, to talk about science a little bit, just for a second, you, you, some of you will be interested and you know this, how this idea has also occurred to the physicists. Even those who otherwise doubt the existence of a creator, they have discovered that there are so many fine details in the cosmos, things like the strength of gravity, the, the ratio of the mass of protons to electrons, the strength of the weak nuclear force, all of these constants and a number of others, if they were to change even a small amount, that would render the universe incapable of supporting life. But there's no other reason they, are, they would be the way they are. Steven Weinberg, who was a Nobel laureate in physics and also an agnostic, he writes this, how surprising it is that the laws of nature and the initial conditions of the universe should allow for the existence of beings who could observe it. Life as we know it would be impossible if any one of several physical quantities had slightly different values. Astronomer Fred Hoyle says it this way, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. And my favorite quote from physicist Freeman Dyson, he says this, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. So, 
from formless and void to very good. That was God's agenda for the six days of creation described in Genesis 1. And in doing this, God's primary goal was, of course, to glorify himself, because that's why God does everything he does. That's his primary goal. The heavens, Psalm 19 tells us, declare his handiworks. The creation is declaring God's glory, and creation moves us to worship as we were doing this morning as we sang. But creation is also, and we can't forget this, it is also a demonstration of God's faithfulness as he arranged the whole process around the needs of this strange and wonderful creature that he would make on the sixth day, namely you and me. Okay. We've been swimming in some pretty deep water this morning. Let's just get out and, and, and dry off and, and for a few minutes talk about what this means for us in a little bit more rubber hits the road. First of all, there are, there are times when you will look up at the night sky and you will wonder if there is any purpose at all for your existence or the existence of the world or the universe. And, and, and sometimes it just seems like things happen randomly, they happen for no reason, and maybe even it's kind of cruel. Particularly at times when you're going through pain or confusion or adversity, and you think, does God care? Is God, does God even notice? Is God even interested in all of this? Why does everything seem so random? God assures us right from the very beginning of his word that life is not random. Life is not random. Your life is not random. The universe is not without purpose and design. You are not a cosmic accident. You are part of a plan. Your existence has meaning and it has worth because the designer of the universe had you in mind when he designed it. Not only does God exist, Not only is God an intelligent and purposeful creator, but this God was caring for your needs even before you were born. So why would he not continue to do that? The creation itself is not merely an expression of God's wisdom and power, although it is that. But it is also an expression of his faithfulness, his steadfast love. The human author of Genesis, according to the testimony of the rest of the Bible, is, of course, Moses. And it seems that that a couple thousand years later, God revealed these things to Moses in some way, and Moses became the first person to really write all of this down. And if you think about the life of Moses, you might remember that he got to experience probably the greatest miracle in all of the Old Testament, which was the parting of the Red Sea, when God was was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and the Egyptian army was chasing them, and, and God opened up the Red Sea, and it said that the Israelites, when passing and escaping from the army, as they walked through, it says there was a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. I wonder if Moses wasn't thinking about that when he wrote about God separating the waters and and, and holding them back here in Genesis chapter 1. And I wonder how often we consider that God is doing that for us even now. He is holding things back. Colossians tells us that in Jesus, all things hold together. In Hebrews, we learn that Jesus himself, listen to this one, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, even now, is holding the whole universe in place by his word, holding back the mighty waters, holding back the darkness. Why? In order to preserve your life. When you take a walk around your neighborhood this afternoon or tomorrow or whenever, or through the woods or or by the lake or at the beach, or, or if you look at the amazing array of plants and animals that God has put, even, don't have to leave Davidson County, just look around you here. 
And you consider the great variety, and you consider that God cares deeply for all of these creatures, that He knows each one of them, and He meets all their needs. That is amazing, isn't it? But Jesus says, don't stop there. Don't stop there because you're supposed to take another step. Let me remind you of what He said. If God cares for this tree, if God cares for this duck, if God cares for this squirrel, if God cares for this little blue-tailed lizard that was on your porch when you opened your door in the morning and it scurried off and God's taking care of the needs of that creature, how much more concerned is He about you? Oh, you of little faith. And then let me close by reminding you of something Jesus said to us the night before He died for us. And this is true for all of us who have come to the end of ourselves and turned to Him for salvation and new life. Jesus said this, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. I go to prepare a place for you. Whether or not you believe God created the world in six days, I hope you agree with me that if he wanted to, he certainly could have, right? I mean, he has the power to do that. He has the power to create everything in six days. Well, listen, Jesus has been working on this other place now for about 2,000 years. I'm thinking it's pretty nice. Revelation 21 fills in some of the details on this, along with a surprise ending, that when Jesus comes back, he actually brings our new home with him. This is not any mobile home that we're talking about. This is something really cool. It's called the New Jerusalem. That we will live forever with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. That the sun will no longer be needed because God has enough light in Himself. And Jesus will be the lamp. And it also says there will be no more sea. Not because it's not nice to spend a day at the beach. But there will be no more sea because we will no longer have anything to fear. And there will be no more night either because the darkness that is currently being held back will be banished forever with no threat of it ever returning. So let's pray and thank God for His faithfulness in creation. And then we're going to sing one final song, one final hymn that I think hits this truth right on the nose. So let's pray as...